How do we define intelligence? What is the point of creativity and intelligence if we are not creating good in the world? In this age of AI, what is the importance of a synthesizing mind? Howard Gardner, Research Professor of Cognition and Education at the Harvard Graduate School of Education and author of over 30 books translated into 32 languages and several hundred articles, is best known for his theory of multiple intelligences, a critique of the notion that there exists but a single human intelligence that can be assessed by standard psychometric instruments. He has twice been selected by foreign policy and prospect magazines as one of the 100 most influential public intellectuals in the world. In the last few years, Gardner has been studying the nature of human synthesizing, a topic introduced in his 2020 memoir, A Synthesizing Mind. Professor Howard Gardner, welcome to The Creative Process. Thank you. I'm glad to have a chance to speak with you. So before we get into the conversation, you are going to share a passage from your memoir with us. Sure. I'm going to read to you from the introduction of my memoir, where I actually start by talking about what it was like to be an ordinary scholar and writer, and then to discover when I had written a book that I suddenly became famous, now what we would call viral. And that's how the book begins. But then I have a more straightforward description of what's in the book. In this book, I trace the origin of my ideas and themes in my personal history, their development in the early years of my research, the initial reception of multiple intelligences theory, which is what made me well-known, and the zigs and zags, both scholarly and cultural, that I have taken in the four decades since I began to develop the theory. But I have another, perhaps less predictable, but to my mind, more pressing motivation for offering this book. For most of my scholarly and writing life, I focused on human minds in general, or to put it differently, on the minds of our species. In what follows, I seek to examine my own mind, the mind that produced the theory of multiple intelligences and various other scholarly concepts over half a century. To my surprise, it's not the kind of mind that's easily or readily explained in terms of the theory of multiple intelligences. To get to the nub of the matter, I'm convinced my own mind is a synthesizing mind, the motivation to synthesize and the ability to synthesize have to do with one's overarching goals, and the act of synthesizing can draw on various intelligences and combinations of intelligences in various ways. In dissecting the act or the art of synthesis, I believe I can illuminate a kind of mind that has not been much analyzed and that may prove especially important in the chapter of human history that lies ahead. And so, in what follows, I seek to describe, interpolate, and illuminate two themes that reflect these motivations. Number one, to show what's involved in creating a new perspective on intelligence in changing the human conversation about the intellect and to illustrate my resistance to being held captive seemingly forever to that conversation changer, meaning I would only be the multiple intelligences person. And two, to investigate the kind of mind that creates a new concept about human experience and that ever since childhood has sought to synthesize vast amounts of information and capture the resulting synthesis in a form that makes sense to the creator and can be conveyed clearly to a wider population. That's the book. Yes, well, it's such an intriguing passage, and I think that's really important because there's so much knowledge out there. It really reminded me of a quote, and I believe Albert Einstein was one of your childhood heroes that you had photographed on your wall, and I think you still do to this day. Imagination is more important than knowledge, for knowledge is limited, whereas imagination embraces the entire world, stimulating progress, giving birth to evolution. 
that's a favorite one of mine, but I don't, of course, mean imagination just in the arts. I just think it's in that deep synthesis where you take the knowledge deeper and then you may give birth to, you know, new understanding or some kinds of creativity. Uh, and I think that synthesis is crucial. I will say amen. I agree with you. The ratio between imagining, which is thinking of things which you haven't thought before, and maybe other people haven't thought before either. You know, Einstein imagined things that other people hadn't. Black hole scientists imagined things that hadn't happened before. Beethoven imagined music that hadn't happened before. I think synthesis is a somewhat different entity because in synthesis, you're dealing with a lot of information which is already there and which would be, in principle, available to everybody, but you're putting it together in a way that makes sense to you and in a way that you communicate it to other people. I mean, one could have syntheses which are clearly just yourself talking to yourself, but then we wouldn't know who Einstein or Beethoven was. They were able to share their syntheses with others. But you can have a very good imagination without being much of a synthesizer. And I think you can be a, a good synthesizer without having a great deal of imagination. If you're taking a course in history and the teacher says, well, write about the French Revolution, or about the civil war in the United States, and I, I want you to draw on three or four different sources, you could do a quite credible synthesis, but uh, the imaginative proportion would not be very high. On the other hand, every night, many people dream, and uh, the dream is clearly a work of your imagination. We notice with our grandchildren, they think that when they dream, everybody else is accessible to their dream, but of course, dreaming is a perfectly individual imagination, but it may or may not be a synthesis. If you dream that suddenly you know, you're naked in front of the House of Lords, that may be a unique imagination, but it's not much of a synthesis. So you can hear that part of what I do as a scholar is to try to distinguish between intellect, imagination, creativity, synthesis, and other mental operations. And I don't want to just focus on this, but of course, you're very well known for bringing to the public this idea of multiple intelligences, which I think is so important. And you have the creative intelligence, you have this, you know, scholarly intelligence in the academic realm. And it was groundbreaking. I think it's important to just evaluate what is intelligence. We know, but we actually didn't really define it. And it takes on new meaning, particularly now as we consider artificial intelligence and machine learning. Let me start by saying that I'm sure in many societies, they have a word for intelligent or smart, having a good mind. There's nothing wrong with that. But intelligence, in quotes, entered into the scientific realm over a century ago when a French psychologist, Alfred Binet, was asked to figure out which people going into the Parisian schools would have difficulty learning and which would find learning easily. And he developed what we call a paper and pencil intelligence test. This turned out to be a pretty good predictor in the Paris school. Now, I often joke, you don't need to have a test for this. You just look at last year's grades, and that's a much better predictor of who's going to have trouble in school than some kind of a test. Nonetheless, both in Europe, especially Western Europe, and the United States, the idea of an intelligence test was appealing, and especially because it was given to millions of recruits in the First World War, the intelligence test or IQ test became kind of a standard. And so nowadays, when experts or lay people use the word intelligent or smart, they often mean that the person would do well on an, on an IQ test or an intelligence test. And there's nothing wrong with that. But well over 40 years ago, 
I decided to try to do a closer examination of human intellect. And I had a lot of resources for doing that. I had a large grant and staff. And so we examined literatures on cognition from psychology, anthropology, genetics, neurology, psychometrics, which is measurement of intellect. And we came up with a conclusion, which, as I said earlier, made me well known that there isn't a single thing called intelligence or intellect, but rather human beings have a set of relatively independent cognitive faculties. Relatively independent means they're not completely correlated either. And I call these the multiple intelligences. Now, Mia, if I call them the multiple talents, we wouldn't be speaking today because talent is a word that everybody uses. And people say, oh, she's musically talented. He's talented in soccer and talented in bargaining and he's talented in making money. But the word talent was considered to be different than the word intelligence. And I said, no. I said, either you say we have half a dozen different talents or we have half a dozen different intelligences. You don't valorize or prioritize things which happen to be connected to how you do in certain kinds of tests and then belittle things like being good in music or being good in navigation or being good in dancing or being good in understanding other people or being good in understanding yourself or being good in discriminating among different plants or different animals. You don't belittle that by calling it talents. You say there are multiple intelligences. And this idea became even more famous because of Daniel Goleman, another American psychologist who created the idea of emotional intelligence and then a magazine shortened that to EQ, and EQ is a very nice contrast to IQ. So now the way I put it, almost everybody in the world accepts the idea of EQ and the idea of multiple intelligences, except psychology test makers, psychometricians. They still want to say, well, there's only one kind of intelligence, and we measure it using an IQ test. Let me use an example without a value judgment. Let's take Donald Trump. Donald Trump was not a good student. He doesn't let you see his grades. He probably faked his way through business school. But to say Donald Trump is stupid misses the point because there's ways in which he's extremely intelligent, but they have, I always say, media intelligence. He understands how to use media and has intelligence of understanding his constituents and how to please them. And there are people who might get twice as high an IQ score as he, who would be a failure in dealing with media and would not be able to convince anything of everybody. So we, we don't want to strangle the human mind by just valorizing what it means to answer some linguistic and some mathematical questions, which is what IQ tests basically do. Yes, indeed. I mean, it perplexed me as well. I'm not a fan of Donald Trump, but I do understand that his way of communicating is actually strange. People are correcting his grammar. And yet I could see at the same time, it's very effective. It, As you say, it's immediate intelligence. And he didn't come from an academic or journalistic background, but he knew how to get to people. I wouldn't say he's a good leader, but he knew how to mobilize people. And you have to say that's a kind of intelligence. And so it seems like now when you're coming from a world of academia, we've had this increased specialization. Often people guard their bits of expertise and kind of cloak it also in jargon so that people who come from outside can't quite understand and they need to explain. We're living in this critical, this crucial decade of transformation, say with climate change and the many different challenges we face. And sometimes our intelligence can act like many veils or say our expertise can act like many veils that get in the way of seeing clearly what needs to be done, say acting on climate change. We have the knowledge, we're just not implementing that knowledge. I think it's important here to distinguish between two things. One is, I would say, communication power, 
and the other is what I would call, what I'm interested in, synthesizing ability. Communication power is you can take 20 scientists who are equally good at doing science, 20 experts who are equally expert, but you could rank order them and how good they are at expressing to the general public what it is that they found. So whenever I get too abstract, your job is to say, well, Howard, tell me in plain English or whatever language, what it is that you mean. So communication capacity is one thing, and I'm pretty good at that compared to some colleagues. But what I'm more interested in and what my memoir focuses on and what I'm working on now every day is what it means to synthesize. And that means to take huge amounts of information, sift through it, have some kind of a goal or project that you're involved in, and then put this information together in ways that make sense and that pass scrutiny with other people who know the same kinds of things, be able to present the results of your synthesis in a way that other people can understand. And I became interested in synthesis quite a while ago, and I wrote the memoir a few years ago. But now with the advent of so-called large language instruments or chat GPT, the pressure to figure out what synthesis is, what it is that these computing systems can do, and what it is of anything that they can't do, and that human beings are still the privileged cohort in carrying out those tasks, that's made the interest in synthesis more important than ever. If we're trying to decide what policy to cover, whether it's an economic policy about interest rates or whether it's the war in the Middle East, what policies to follow militarily and economically and ethically, for that matter, do we entrust that to some kind of a computational system or is this something that human judgment needs to be brought to bear? And if so, how and at what point? And these are quintessential synthesizing questions. You can't just look up and say, well, what should we do with the Gaza Strip? Or what should we do in Japan, which has had low interest rates, but the rest of the world has got very high inflation? These are not things where we just want to press a button and get the answer. These are things we want to discuss and debate and review and maybe even pit one large language instrument against another and see do they come up with the same answers. They might well not. Indeed. And the answers would be ranked by importance. You know, I think that in terms of the AI, you can call it a computational intelligence, but it's not a consciousness. In analyzing, I think, is where the intelligence comes in and also where the creativity comes in. It's also important, as you've written about frames of mind, you know, how we've been parented and you write in detail about your upbringing. Just tell us a little bit about your upbringing and how that shaped you and your formation as the person you are today. I was born 80 years ago in Scranton, Pennsylvania. And that's interesting because Joseph Biden, president, is also 80 years old. He was also born in Scranton. It's a middle-sized town in Pennsylvania. We didn't know each other, and I'm not sure we would have had that much to say to each other. He was an Irish kid who very soon left Scranton. I was the son of German-Jewish immigrants who made it out of Germany just before the Second World War. In fact, they arrived in New York on the Kristallnacht, the night of the shattering glasses where some of their relatives were destroyed. And I grew up as a serious uh, young boy who had an older brother who died in a sleigh riding accident. And that was a big factor in my childhood because I was in a sense a, a hope of the family to replace him. And if you had seen me when I was age 10, you would have seen me reading a lot. I also started a newspaper when I was in second grade, seven or eight years old. I don't think anybody who read it, but I remember taking tiny little letters and putting them on some kind of a board and then turning the roller around and producing newspapers. And I was a serious young pianist. I played piano every day. And in fact, I might have become a pianist professionally. I still play now every day, but I play for myself, not for anybody else. 
I think, though, my life really changed when I was admitted to a very good college, Harvard College, in the early 1960s, the John F. Kennedy era. And not only did my horizon expand a great deal, but as an undergraduate in those days, in the early 60s, we were encouraged to read very widely, to write very widely, to study all different kinds of topics, art, music, economics, history, biology. I took them all. And this is not something that's available in most other countries. In most other countries, after secondary school, you have to specialize. You go to professional school, or if you want to be an academic, you go and you study history, or you go and you study literature. But I had a very wide-ranging college experience, and that made me kind of an intellectual, if you will. And the very fact that I loved college probably predicted I didn't like graduate school at all. Graduate school is where you get your professional degree. I decided to study a field called developmental psychology, the field that the Swiss psychologist Jean Piaget. And I didn't really like graduate school because I was being asked to focus and funnel and concentrate and become an expert. And in fact, one of my professors wanted to kick me out of graduate school because he thought that I would never become a good experimental psychologist. And I was rescued by some other professors who saw some merit in what I was doing. And actually, when I was in graduate school, I did experiments and I got my degree for empirical research, but I also wrote and worked on three books, all of which were published in the early 1970s. And that was very unusual for a scholar mastering a discipline to write books. In fact, when they were trying to decide whether to give you tenure, which means a lifetime appointment, if you wrote books, that was probably held against you. What you were supposed to do was to write technical articles and get them into technical journals. And I did that, but I realized by the time I was in my early 30s, that there were many people who could do experiments at least as well or better than I could. But there were very few people in my field who could write books which were taken seriously by scholars, but which was available and read by the general public. And so the works I'm best known, works on multiple intelligences, creativity, leadership, ethics, these are all books that are what we call middle-level books, which may get reviewed by scholarly journals, but they also get reviewed in newspapers and magazines. And we call this a public intellectual. I think I used to be a public intellectual. Now I'm kind of a retired public intellectual, but I still write almost every day. I have probably done five 500 blogs in the past few years, and I'm putting together two collections of my papers with the titles The Essential Howard Gardner on Education and The Essential Howard Gardner on Mind. Because even though I've written over 30 books, nobody's ever going to read those books again. There'll be two volumes out in the next couple of years. And uh, again, I think these books will also be mid-level books. They will be useful to scholars. But if people want to know what does Howard Gardner think about truth, beauty, and goodness, they don't have to read a 130,000-word book. They can read a summary of 10,000 words. Indeed. And I think you have many years writing ahead of you since there's longevity in your family. I believe your mother lived to 102, mind fully intact. I want to go back to a little bit about what's unusual about your upbringing or might lead you to some of the your propensity to have a synthesizing mind. You were born into a German-speaking family, and what I understand of the German language almost seems like a language of synthesis with the compound words. You, you also have this kind of monocular vision and prosopagnosic with kind of face blindness. You, you don't always recognize faces, but you have this internal music, which is a different kind of vision. So I, I thought that was interesting. That can also kind of shape, I don't know, you maybe going inward, you describe as having grown up, you lived in your mind. 
Well, you said a lot of stuff there, and it's correct. You've read my book. So let, let me say a few things in, in response to that. First of all, because of the rise of the Nazis, my parents did not have university education. They were both robbed of that. But it was a Jewish family as well as a German family. And so ideas were taken seriously. And I had an uncle who was more of an intellectual than my parents, and he kind of adopted me, Uncle Fritz. And he actually read what I wrote. I don't think my parents ever read what I wrote and gave me comments on it. And yeah, I have, I might say, funny strengths and weaknesses. As you say, I'm colorblind. That's thanks to my mother. She's the carrier of the gene. I'm prosopagnosic. I don't recognize faces. That's thanks to my father. That he and my daughter, Kareth, can't recognize faces. But we didn't have any genes which interfered with music, and music was very important in my mother's family. My father used to joke, music is the noise that bothers me the least. So he was not musically oriented, but my paternal sides were. So I, I think to make what you say concrete, the garden that makes up one's mind is always to some extent the flowers and trees that we get from our families genetically, but also we get from our families culturally. Because even though I said my family wasn't intellectual, we argued about things, we debated things. My father read the newspaper every day. That was important. That was something that she did. And so it was intellectual and artistic, but in a very narrow compass. It was Scranton, Pennsylvania. It was not the Upper West Side of New York City, where I clearly would have been pressured to go to Juilliard and to study music entirely because that's what you did if you were a good pianist. At age 12, my piano teacher, who was in his 90s, said, well, Howard, I've taught you all I can teach you. Now you have to go to New York and practice three hours a day. Going to New York before you had speedy transportation was at least three or four hours each way. I didn't want to practice the piano three more hours a day. And so I said, no, I'm going to stop. And I just played informally with my teacher, but I didn't do, do it soberly anymore. And that was an advantage of growing up in a small town. I didn't feel pressured by peers and by teachers to do things which I would have had to do if I lived in Paris or Berlin or New York or Chicago or, or Los Angeles. As living in your own mind, I think I say this in the book, there were two things in my household which were never spoken about. One was the Holocaust, and the word for the Holocaust didn't even get used widely until 20 years after 1945. So the Holocaust was never discussed, and the death of my brother was never discussed. I only found some newspaper clippings when I was 10 or 11 years old, which told me that he died. My parents would say, well, that was a boy in the neighborhood because they couldn't bring themselves to do it. And so... When you grow up in a family where there's some things that are very overt, but other things that were hidden, it may drive you into thinking in your own mind. I really would love to know when I, what I was like when I was 13. I'll tell you why. When I was 13, and I say this in the book, my parents knew they had a, I would say, a bright kid in the school sense of the term. So they drove with me to Hoboken, New Jersey, and they had me tested for five straight days. This was Psychometrics, a place called the Stevens Institute of Technology. It cost $300, which now would be like $3,000 or $10,000. So I was tested for a week on all the psychological tests that were available at the time. At the end of the week, we were brought into a office, and the man, I'm sure he was dressed in suit and tie, said, Mr. and Mrs. Gardner, Howard is very bright. He probably can do most anything but his real strengths are in the clerical area. And I said to myself, for goodness sake, if a week in Hoboken and uh, a whole slew of tests yields only the fact that you'd be a good clerk, I had no desire to do it all. It made me very suspicious, psychological tests and what they can't tell you. And that shouldn't be a verdict about your life. That should be a verdict of how you do in certain kinds of tests. And we now know if you get coached in them. And uh, so they're not really very fair. 
because in a sense, there's much a measure of coaching, of teaching how to take those kinds of tests than they are a sheer measure of intellect. And also the adaptive intelligence and problem solving and the talents that come to bear only on real situations, not multiple choice. It's not a real world testing. Zachary? So you mentioned that children can be coached into basically succeeding on these psychometric tests. In your work, you observe that children exhibit different intelligences or different talents from a very early age. And I was wondering, do you think that is more because of genetics or more because of the influences of our environment from an early age? Yeah, that's a very complicated question to unravel. And indeed, because we have better and better tools for looking at genetics, we could answer that question much better in 2023 or four than we could in 1980 when I was doing this work. My own impression is that every human capacity has a significant genetic component, but certain capacities have much more of a genetic component than others. So for example, in music, my parents couldn't afford a piano. We didn't have any instruments around the house. But I went over to a neighbor's house when I was five years old. I began to pick out notes on the piano. And the neighbor said, well, you better get a piano. So my parents spent $30 and got a piano, which I had throughout high school. And that was clearly something that I had a high genetic potential to do because most kids could not sit down and begin to pick out pieces on a piano when they were five or six years of age. There are other things like ability to understand other people, which is much less genetic and much more experience and learning from experience. Nobody's born knowing how to psych out other people, knowing how to be a good salesperson. But if you uh, are raised in a family where that's important and you try to sell newspapers when you're younger, or Girl Scout cookies or whatever, you develop that muscle. And so I think if I could make a contrast, I would say musical intelligence, I believe is highly loaded genetically. I think interpersonal intelligence is not highly loaded at all, except if you are autistic. Autistic people have great difficulty putting themselves in the place of other people, but that's a genetic defect or a neurological defect. And that's of course where intensive training does help out. I've been married twice to two wonderful women. I think they loved me. And they were both tone deaf. And I could play the piano every day and they couldn't tell Schubert from, to Gershwin to uh, uh, Taylor Swift. Uh, so that, you know, these are things that are very hard to train if you don't have some inborn capacity. So the answer is it's complicated and you have to look at every skill individually. And you also have to look at different cultures. I think there are many more people in Hungary and Finland who can carry a tune than you would find in the United States, because in Hungary and Finland, music, including solfege, has traditionally been very much more important in the curriculum. So even someone like my wife, Ellen, who was called a crow, meaning you shouldn't sing, if she'd been raised in Hungary or Finland, she could probably fake it much better, just like I can fake things better because uh, I've had uh, experience in knowing what my weaknesses are and how to compensate for them. A funny thing is that during COVID, when everybody's wearing a mask, I wasn't impaired at all in recognizing people by faces, because I don't recognize people by faces anyway. I recognize by hair style and how they walk. I have not face blindness, but I'm a visual artist. So I've come back from conversations and said, oh, she's so beautiful. And people could understand who I was talking about because I focus on the one feature that I, it's kind of like a myopia towards beauty. So I understand that it's all about interpretation. We all see the world so differently. I, I want to raise a professor kind of question. You have one sense of beauty, but it's not at all clear that other people would have the same sense of beauty. So I would simply say 
that you would need to be more of an empiricist and see whether the one thing that you pick out, which could be the eyes or the color of the cheek or the way the person holds themselves is the same than what Zachary would pick out or what I would pick out. If you say somebody's tall, that's not debatable. Whether they have gray hair, that's not debatable. My wife is like you. She picks out beauty right away. And she says, somebody's beautiful. And I say, well, I don't see that at all. And then when she tells me why, I may or may not see it. And I don't know that her sense of beauty, which is, I would say, a Germanic expressionist sense of beauty, is the same as yours. How would you describe your sense of beauty? I think that I have a capacity, and it might be related to curiosity, to find everything kind of interesting. I just focus on what, it might be a standard sense of beauty, but I can see the one part, as you say, that I think is beautiful. And I would ignore, say, all the other parts of the face. I would just blur that out. And I could really see the beautiful or the inner energy or something there, intelligence or creativity. And so it comes at odds to what are the traditional senses. I have a wonderful challenge to you, which will change your life. I took the word intelligence and made it multiple. I think you should study multiple beauties. And I bet you would find it's a reasonably small number, whether it's five or 10, which account for most of their variation across people. So your job is to come up with a theory of multiple beauties. What a wonderful idea. I accept the challenge and I'll report on it to you. Now go ahead, Zach. And this kind of all just reminds me of the saying, it's a little bit cliche, but beauty is in the eye of the beholder. So yeah, I guess continuing the conversation, I, I found it really interesting how you mentioned that children in Finland and in those schools might be able to carry a tune better because that's an environmental sort of a cultural force there. Let me just say another thing. Often people will be singing in a group, and if you're in a group where everybody else is carrying the tune, you learn how to ease your way in or how to stop voice vocalizing if you can't get into that region. And if you're in a place where you're not working all the time with other people singing, you don't have that ability. So the learning how to sing doesn't simply increase your genetic capacity to carry a tune. It gives you strategies to deal with when you feel like you're lost in doing it. So it's kind of the supports that you need. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I guess that had me thinking about how, in general, multiple intelligence theory, you argue for an education system in which focusing on the individual intelligences or strengths, rather than giving every single person just, here's the test that you have to take to do well. And that's the education system that I grew up on. I guess, what are the advantages of focusing on individual strengths? Where did you grow up? In New Jersey. Where in New Jersey? I grew up in a, a town called Milburn, which is a suburb outside of New York City. Yeah, I spent a lot of time in upper New Jersey. That's how you get from Scranton to New York. Yeah, first of all, even though some people may think that being punished and being told you're stupid is a good motivator, I think most 21st century educators would agree that you know having a positive attitude about what you are and what you can do is more helpful. And one of the good things about the American educational system is that it is, it is a system of uh, second chances. You can go to college whenever, you can go to community college, you can take courses online and so on. And most other societies, is 11-year-old test and a 16-year-old test. If you don't do well in those tests, your life and career is really circumscribed. You have much less options. But I would make two major points to your question. One is uh, life is more than school. And whether or not you can make a living out of your particular multiple intelligence profile, it's certainly different between a life that's meaningful and has joy in it and be helpful to other people and yourself. Within school, when I wrote about multiple intelligences, I was writing as a psychologist and as a cognitive scientist. I was not writing as an educator, but all over the world, it's educators who have found these ideas interesting and worth taking seriously. I can't count the number of countries that have written to me about putting multiple intelligences into their curriculum. I can't count 
the number of schools, including many that are named after me or called multiple intelligences schools, which find these ideas useful. But I, as the creator, never tried to design a school and only rarely tried to do anything about assessment. There are two educational ideas that come out of multiple intelligences theory. They're called individuation and pluralization. Individuation means know as much about every learner as possible and help that learner learn whatever he or she needs to learn in ways that work for them. Now, if you're a single teacher and there are 40 students in the class, it's not that easy to individualize. But we live in an age where almost everybody has access to computer systems of one sort or another. And there we have the choice of individualizing the curriculum as much as we want. Uh, and there are many ways to learn algebra. And there's no reason why your way, Zachary, would be the same as Mia's or vice versa. So individualization is one implication of MI theory. The other pluralization is when you want to decide what are the essentials of that topic and then teach it in lots of different ways. I've actually written a book about how you can teach music, biology, and history using six or seven different approaches, which of course mirror the multiple intelligences. Artistic approaches, musical approaches, play approaches, hands-on kinds of approaches, writing approaches, and so on. And when you teach something in more than one way, two good things happen. One, you reach more people because maybe Zachary learns in one way, Mia learns in a second way, Howard learns in a third way. Second of all, and this is a more subtle but very important concept, you show what it's like to really understand something. Because if you really understand something, you can think about it in more than one way. And if a teacher explains, let's say, the Pythagorean theorem, and the student says, I don't understand that. Can you explain it another way? And she says, no, you're stupid. It's the teacher who's stupid because the teacher can't really explain it in another way. And the teacher should actually study it more or talk to other teachers about other ways to present that idea. I've never run into anything which can only be explained in one way. Multiple intelligence theory is useful to anybody who wants to discover strengths and develop them, but it's also used to educators if they know their students well and if they take advantage of different ways to teach things. Hi, my name is Zachary DeWalter, and I'm a sophomore at Williams College studying psychology. It's hard to understate the influence of Howard Gardner's theory of multiple intelligences on transforming the conception of intelligence from a score on an IQ test to a multiplicity of individual abilities. His ideas have transformed educational models around the world by showing what is possible when you cater education to individual learners. One poignant example that illustrates the power of Gardner's theories in practice is the Finnish school system. In Finland, there are no mandatory standardized tests. Teachers grade students on an individual effort and give students plenty of time to explore their intelligences in self-directed projects. Teachers must receive master's degrees to teach and are well-paid, and Finnish students have minimal homework, five-hour school days, and outperform nearly every country in the world. I grew up in the U.S. public school system. My high school was considered a top public high school, and while I learned how to do well in school, the cost was a regimented, unimodal, performance-obsessed and unhealthy culture. Exceptional teachers, which I am lucky to have had a few, are exceptional because they have found ways to work around the standardized curriculum and actually reach their students. And this isn't just a United States problem, it's a global problem. East Asian countries such as China, South Korea, and Japan are even more standardized and so intense that they cannot be healthy for any child to grow into. I'm most fascinated by psychology, but I didn't learn that through school. I learned that by reading lots of books, in spite of school, and I really only had time to do that once I got into college. 
The public education system has been a hindrance to the development of my individual intelligences and creative passions. And I know I'm not the only one that shares that sentiment. I wonder if I had more opportunity to self-direct my education to my individual intelligences and interests, how much more fulfilled could I have been during my primary and secondary years of education? What kind of future are we leaving for our kids when we prioritize standardized achievement scores over creative intelligences and talents? The world's most pressing problems require new ways of thinking, being, and relating to the world that won't be acquired by filling out bubbles on a Scantron. Precisely, these problems ask more of us. They demand that we look within ourselves, individuate, and develop our intelligences to offer solutions that come from our own creative potentials. Now back to the interview. And I think that's why, as we say, multiple intelligences has gone viral. And the virus has infected everybody except test takers and test makers because they hug their chains, so to speak. Well, I think it's so important because everyone has a valuable perspective and it's just important. And so it reveals the rigidity of the teachers or the educational model if they can't reach them. Sometimes rigidity of parents. I mean, I wasn't an ideal parent. I tried to do as good a job as I could, but your own standards come through. And if you criticize one thing and, and praise another, your children picked it up, whether you're school children or biological children. So you were a believer in excellence, engagement, and ethics, you know, which are strong components of the humanities. What do you feel about having academic input into the governance of AI? We've just seen now with the recent stance by the G7 nations and by President Biden about putting guardrails, you know, nudging it towards an ethical way of making sure we have the right balance in place for human flourishing rather than human harm. Okay, well, thank you for bringing it up. I actually finished my work on multiple intelligences almost 40 years ago. And since then, I've been focused with colleagues on what we call good work and good citizenship. In our study of good work, we studied nine different professions, dealing from law and medicine to journalism to teaching. And we found out people who were admired and to find out why the professionals were admired. And we found out they were admired for three things. One, how excellently they carried out their work. Number two, how engaged they were, to what extent they really like their work, want to do it, feel good about being at work rather than dreading it. And three, and what you're touching on, did they carry out the work in an ethical way? Now, when it's absolutely clear what to do in a situation, then you don't call it ethical. Ethical is what do you do when a situation is complicated? Let's say you're a lawyer and you find that the client lies to you. Do you let the client lie on the stand or do you say, no, I'm not going to your lawyer if you're going to lie. If you're a doctor and there are two people who have the same injury and one is a relative and the other is a stranger, what do you do? If you're a journalist and you're covering a story and you see a crime occurring, should you be, remain a journalist and cover it or should you call the police? And so we're very, very interested in how people deal with ethical issues. Now, as you are anticipating the issues of excellence, engagement, and ethics, they have to be re-examined in an era when there are computational systems which are clearly as excellent as any human being can do, maybe more excellent. The word engagement doesn't mean anything when you're talking about computational systems. They aren't asked whether they like what they're doing or not. They just do it. But the issue of ethics is very difficult and very complicated. And I touched on it earlier. If you're trying to decide what to do in a complicated economics matter, in a complicated military matter, do you leave the decision to the computational system? 
or do you have human beings making alone or in groups? And this is not something where I have any special insights. My guess would be you should find out what, what various computational systems recommend, but the final decisions shouldn't be a majority vote among chat GPTs. It should be human beings evaluating what these different systems recommend and then living with the consequences of human-made decisions. I don't want a decision about whether to have a nuclear weapon shot off to be made by chat GPT. And I don't want it to be made by Donald Trump either, but I would like to think that rational leaders consulting with one another and being very cautious, life and death decisions. And as you know from your question, there are things which large language instruments could recommend which would destroy the planet, but they don't care. It's not their planet. Yeah, just going off of what you said, ethical decisions are really complicated and we cannot rely on AI to reasonably decide. So then from an outsider's perspective, it seems that you pivoted interest from multiple intelligence theory to doing the Good Work Project and focusing on ethical good work. Could you talk a little bit more about what made you interested in pursuing the Good Work Project? Okay. Well, I had two close colleagues, both psychologists, William Damon, a student of moral development, and Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, uh, recently deceased, probably known to many of your audience because he developed the notion of flow, which is that psychological state where anxiety and boredom are mediated by something that really involves and engross you. And the three of us were able to spend a year together in a research center. And the question we came up with was, can you be creative and humane at the same time? Creative means having your mind go free, think about all sorts of things, try them out. Nothing is taboo, nothing is off limits. But at the same time, can you do it in a way that's humane and ethical and avoids, for example, creating the Einstein equation, which was a brilliant physics explanation and also led to the to nuclear weapons. And similarly, with cracking genetic code. And we thought this was a good question, but we weren't wise enough to come up with an answer in itself. So that's why we spent 10 years, roughly from 1995 to 2005, interviewing about 1,500 people from nine different professions. And it was from that very intensive and extensive study that we came up with the three E's of good work, excellence, engagement, and ethics. Since then, my research group at Harvard has called this The Good Project, and The Good Project is looking at the development of a moral and ethical stance as young as the age of three or four, preschool, all the way to professions in middle life. And we have a website, thegoodproject.org, where you can read blogs and various papers on this topic. And as Mia indicated, there are also our books in which there's one book called Good Work, another book called Truth, Beauty, Goodness, Reframe, where we describe our current thinking. And you know, I think the study would have been different if we had done it in the age of ChatGPT. But any good concept needs to be rethought and reformulated when there's a new player, whether it was genetics, the understanding of genes 50 years ago, or whether it's large language instruments today. And what scholars my age do is we write about these things, we talk about these things, but we hope our students will carry it through. So I've been trying to organize a network on synthesizing which now is people from several different countries involved. And my team on The Good Project is working with schools in dozens of countries. And the curriculum has been translated into Portuguese, Chinese. It's about to be translated into Japanese. And that's how we hope these ideas will make a difference. Now, if you are um, a pessimist by nature, as I am, you'll say, well, what can a bunch of scholars in Cambridge, Massachusetts possibly do that's going to change the way the world is? And the answer is we can't do it ourselves. We have to find partners and like-minded people all over the world. 
and do blogs and podcasts and write. And uh, I don't do social media, but my colleagues do and try to come out with more positive ways of thinking about things because there's plenty of depressing news and examples in the world. And uh, I like to say I'm a pessimist by nature, but I try to live my life as an optimist. Well, you've definitely put a lot of good into the world. And you also, of your recent book, you co-authored The Real World of College with Wendy Fishman, which is also over 2,000 interviewed students, alumni, faculty, and others. Just tell us about that work. Okay, well, thank you. What you said is true. Having been, Wendy and I have worked together for 30 years and having observed many challenges and difficulties for students during the college years, we decided not to take anybody else's word for it, so to speak. But as you said, we carried out 2,000 semi-structured interviews on 10 different campuses around the country, and we spoke to eight different constituencies, incoming students, graduating students, fresh faculty, administrators, college presidents, college trustees, those are the board's alumni, people who've been to these schools, and parents of students. So we had a huge database. We spent two and a half years analyzing the data. And then, as you say, we published a book called The Real World of College. And uh, in that book, let me just talk about two things. Number one, we found almost no students even knew what ethics was, let alone had any sense of what it means to deal with ethical issues and problems. So they were not being prepared for the world of work. Even when they were ethics centers at these schools, most students hadn't heard of them. On the second thing, where the students were guilty, but their parents and the uh, lovers were even more guilty, was egocentrist. Our students used the word I 11 times more than they used the word we, and their, the, the parents used the word I 22 times more than they used the word we, and the lums used the word I 14 times more than the word we. The United States in the 2020s is an incredibly egocentric and egotistic society with people concerned totally about themselves. This is very bad and very dangerous. And one of the things we're studying now and we're writing about it is that colleges and universities have an advantage if they have a mission which everybody understands and agrees upon and tries to achieve. And the United States college and universities suffer from what we call mission sprawl. They claim to be doing hundreds of things and any entity that claims to be doing hundreds of things, nobody takes seriously what they say. Now, if you're not in the United States, you may be thinking, well, what difference does this make? And that's a good question to ask because our tertiary system is very different from that in Europe. We have two-year and four-year colleges where people don't specialize. We call them liberal arts schools, where in most societies around the world, you finish secondary school and you go right to a professional school, whether it's in law or engineering or medicine or journalism or even becoming a, a teacher or a professor. So what Wendy and I, with a very gifted scholar named William Kirby, have done, we're putting out a book called Innovations in Higher Education Around the World. And 22 scholars from a dozen different countries are writing about what's going on in higher education in their own country. And we believe, uh, the United States in particular, is very egocentric and it's focused on itself. We have a lot to learn from what's going on in Japan, in Western Europe, in India, in Latin America, in China, in Hong Kong. And so the book is filled with uh, essays from people who write about innovations in their country. And uh, the book should be out in a year or so. So if you want to know about the real world of college in the United States, look for Fishman and Gardner. If you want to know about innovations around the world, look for uh, Fishman, Gardner, and Kirby.
on climate change, uh, I mean, the barriers are largely political. Individual countries and countries working together need to do things to keep carbon down and to find options and to have people lead lives in ways in which are less destructive to our environment. And I don't have a great deal of faith that our political system can do that. Um, I'm not religious myself, but I think that we need to have a new religious leader in the world, not religion God, but religion plant. And I always say Gandhi is the most important person of the last thousand years because he understood that if we tried to fight with weapons, we would just destroy one another, but we have to disagree peacefully. And I think we need a Gandhi kind of figure who can mobilize people across different nations and different attitudes. Uh, on the question where I think I do have something to say, I think in the schools of the future, we're going to focus much more on what it means to be human beings on our planet. And I started my work in psychology with Jerome Ruder, who was a great psychologist, and he developed in the early 60s a curriculum for middle school called Man, A Course of Study. Now we would call human beings a course of study. And that curriculum addressed three questions. What makes human beings human? How do they get that way? And how can they be made more so? And my answer to your question, Mia, is that when curricula all over the world address those questions and try to come up with good answers, I think that's the best chance for the planet to survive, which is the question of climate change, but also to thrive, which is a question of good work and good citizenship. Indeed. Thank you, Professor Howard Gardner, for sharing with us the garden of your mind, your insights into multiple intelligences that welcome a variety of perspectives and disciplines by helping us understand our minds and collective potential. We can create positive futures. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast and the creative process. Thank you, Mia. Thank you, Zachary. And I hope some of the things we're talking about will be nudged in a good direction as a result of the conversation. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Mischowski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Zachary Lewalter with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer on this episode were Katie Foster and Zachary Lewalter. The Creative Process is produced by Mia Funk. Additional production support by Sophie Garnier. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.